Just as physical life begins with a birth, spiritual life also begins with a birth. That's the important truth that we hear from our teacher, Dr. J. Vernon McGee, on the Sunday Sermon. Welcome to Through the Bible. I'm Steve Schwetz, inviting you to grab your copy of God's Word and turn it to Philippians 1, verse 21 for our message, Life Begins. And as you do that, I want to read a few letters from our fellow Bible bus passengers. First, we hear from a listener in Angola. This program gave me the hope to be in heaven. I did not know the living God. And through you, I gain the hope of salvation. Now I listen, and it is keeping me in the way of God. Now I understand what is my purpose here on earth. Isn't that great? Keeping in the way of God is a thought that we can all really benefit from as we go through the day's ups and downs. Now, Dr. McGee will talk a little bit more about our purpose on earth in his sermon today. Next, we're going to hear from a listener named Shavapa, who hops aboard the Bible bus in Karnataka, India. And she says... For the first time, I watched this program on TV. The word attracted my heart and soul. Now I am eager to know about Jesus. Please send me a Bible in Canada. And then here's a note. This is from Stephanie. She left it on our Facebook page. I celebrate my 10-year and second full excursion through the Bible this month. I cannot believe how quickly time has moved and how much I have learned as a passenger. God is very strange, unusual, and beautiful, so much so that the completion of my ride on the Bible bus coincides with the 10th anniversary of my month's transition from this life to the next. I know this was a huge part of his plan for my life. My mother would be so proud as she loved through the Bible immensely. Thank you, Lord, for the late Dr. McGee and the good folks who take the Great Commission literally. Well, congratulations, Stephanie. What an encouragement you are. And I'll be sure to save you a seat on the Bible bus for your third trip. Believe me, we just keep learning new and wonderful things. Our last note comes from Marilyn. She's in the U.S. and she writes, I love to hear how the Lord is answering prayer for those listening to the Bible bus in other countries and in our town. As we listen, we sometimes find encouragement to pass on to those we visit in our local jail. They are encouraged to pray for others in jail or in difficult places. It's easy to get caught up in the daily hustle of life. But this reminds me to take time to look up, see the beauty of God's creation, and thank Him for caring for people all around the world who are seeking Him. His arm is not short to reach those searching for Him in unexpected places with an awareness of Himself and His Word. Well, you know, Marilyn, that is so true. Thanks for that reminder. And what are you learning as we study God's Word together? Are these Sunday sermons encouraging you to reach out and share God's Word with those around you? Well, you know we'd love to hear your story. You can send your note to BibleBus at ttb.org or to Box 7100, Pasadena, California, 91109. In Canada, Box 25325, London, Ontario, N6C, 6B1. And remember, you can always leave us a voicemail message at 1-800-65-BIBLE, or you can leave a note on our Facebook page like Stephanie did. Let's pray together. Thank you, Heavenly Father, for this time together in your word. We ask that you'd use it to renew our minds and our hearts and then draw us close and speak to us about how we can lift Jesus up in all that we do and say. In his precious name we pray. Amen. Here's the Sunday Sermon on Through the Bible with Dr. J. Vernon McGee. I'm turning to the first chapter of Philippians, the 21st verse. For to me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. The translators, in order to smooth out the translation, have supplied the little verb to be. 
It should not be here at all. It is correctly translated, for to me to live, Christ, and to die, gain. Paul is saying here that as far as his life is concerned, it's Christ, and to die, that's gain. And gain in the business world is always more of the same thing. If a man invests $5,000 and during the year he makes $1,000 with it, he has more of the same thing, and it's called gain. And so what Paul is saying this, my life down here is Christ, and if I die, it'll be more of Christ. To die is gain. That was the center and the periphery of the life of the Apostle Paul was the Lord Jesus Christ. And so tonight we want to take this text for me to live life, Christ, death, gain. It's late at night in the hospital. Nothing is heard until all of a sudden there is a startled cry at the end of the hall. It's the cry of a little baby. And you see an, a father leap to the floor and begin to walk down in the direction of the cry. And someone says to him, your baby has been born. A new life has come into the world. Is that the beginning of life? May I say to you that the Word of God actually begins physical life before that. Job spoke of a life before he came into this world. He says, Naked came I out of my mother's womb. He said, I had an existence before I made an entrance into this world. And then David goes back to the very beginning and says, In sin did my mother conceive me. So when does life begin? Is that when life begins? Several years ago, a book came out bearing the euphemistic and euphonious title of Life Begins at Forty. That certainly was a great boon for middle-aged folk to be kidded into the fact that they were just beginning to live when most of them knew they had come to the top of the hill and they were looking down on the other side. But it was a popular book for a long time until some caught on that life really didn't begin at 40. And then there has been known for a long time that physical life is not really living after all. We took last Thursday evening, the book of Ecclesiastes. And I'm sure that those of us that were present came to the conclusion as we looked into this book that the writer there, having tasted everything that you could taste in a physical way that this life has to offer, he came to the pessimistic conclusion that all is vanity and vexation of spirit. And he said that you can adopt the the philosophy of life, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow you die. And it is possible down here to be a successful earthworm and go through life as a successful earthworm and never really live at all. 
The story is told about the mole that one day came up out of the ground. And when he did, there was a bird in the tree singing. And the mole said to the bird, Why in the world are you singing? And the bird says, I'm singing because the sun is out. I'm singing because the fact that it's a bright world. And I'm singing because the flowers are blooming. And I'm singing because I think it's a wonderful world. And the mole says, What do you mean? A world of flowers and birds and singing and sunshine. He says, Don't you know that this world is nothing in the world but earthworms? May I say to you, a great many people living that kind of a life on that kind of a plane, and you can be a successful earthworm down here. There are others that move up a little higher. They speak of the good life, a life of culture, a life of education, a life of refinement. And they appreciate the better things of life. They love to go to art galleries. They love to listen to fine music. It was Dr. Thorndike, the eminent psychologist, that before World War II made this statement. He said that he had examined over the world many places, but he came to the conclusion that Pasadena, California, was the most ideal place to live. And I'm no representative for the Chamber of Commerce of Pasadena. That was before World War II. He could not say that today with the smog and the traffic and other things that have happened to the lovely city of Pasadena. But at that time, it was the best place, he said, to live. And that was a strange thing when I read that because I had just come to Pasadena and some friends took us across that bridge. You remember the old bridge across the Arroyo that wound around? And I said as we went across it, why do they have this big wire fence? Well, they said, we've had an epidemic of suicides here. People jumping off this bridge, and so they put the big fence here. Well, I said, you know, that is a strange thing. Dr. Thorndike says this is the most ideal place in the world to live in, and in that place you have to put a fence on the bridge to keep the population from jumping off and committing suicide. May I say to you tonight, friends, even when you move to that level, you have not found the place to live. Many men have been able to say, for me to live as wealth is to get rich. Jay Gould made that the philosophy of his life. And when he became an old man, he said, I'm the most miserable man on the earth. Ivan Kruger, who said that I intend to amass the greatest fortune that any man's ever amassed, and he built up the largest monopoly that the world has ever seen. He committed suicide. Men have said, for me to live is fame. I want to become famous. Charles Lamb said, I walk up and down thinking I'm happy and knowing that I'm not. Stephen Foster, the songwriter that wrote so many lovely songs, died a drunkard's death at the age of 38. Many men said, for me to live is power. Napoleon said that, and he died a, a lonely, horrible death. Mussolini made power the philosophy of his life. He was executed. Many men have made pleasure the goal of their life. It was 
Lord Byron. I do not believe that there's ever been a man as gifted as that man. He had wealth. He had position. He belonged to the nobility. He was fine-looking, and he was a genius. And yet that man, when he reached the age of 35, wrote, My life is in the yellow leaf. The fruits and flowers of love have gone. The worm, the canker, and the grief are mine and mine alone. What a horrible thing. A man that had all that he had. And many of us who have just a little Scotch blood, who like to wax sentimental about Bobby Burns. Bobby Burns made pleasure his philosophy of life, and he says, for me to live is pleasure. Will you listen to Bobby Burns? Pleasures are as poppies spread. You seize the flower, the bloom is shed. And he said that I found that all has become ashes in my hands. For me to live can be many things. But Paul could say, for me to live is Christ. And Paul had that as his philosophy of life. What's your philosophy of life? Everybody's got a philosophy of life. What is your goal? Tonight, what is the goal of your life? What is it you're after? What's the thing that's uppermost? Well, I tell you, if we'd search our own hearts, and make an inventory of our lives that might startle some of us, the things that we've let edge out into the front place and taking first place tonight, and we know those things ought not to have first place. Paul could say, for me to live, Christ. And this is the man, when he wrote this epistle, he wrote it concerning Christian experience. As we're going to see Thursday night, this may not be your experience as a Christian, it may not be mine, but this is the kind of Christian experience God wants every Christian to have, and the overtone here and the undertone of this epistle is joy. And don't say that Paul could say it, but uh, he wasn't in the awkward and ugly and bad spot that you are in tonight. So many people are saying this evening, well, if Brother Paul lived here in Los Angeles where I live, or if he had to put up with the mother-in-law that I have to put up with, or he had the neighbors or he worked where I worked, or he has the things to contend with that I have to contend with, he could never say rejoice in the Lord, and again I say rejoice. As we saw this morning, God took this man and one of the things he said, he said, I'm going to show him how great things he must suffer. And when he wrote the epistle to the Philippians, he was a sick man in the dark, damp dungeon in the Mamertine prison with death facing him. And in the midst of that, may I say to you, there's not a person living tonight that's in as bad spot as this man was in. God put him there purposely. So no Christian after Paul would ever be able to say, Paul can say it, but he wasn't in my place. No, he wasn't in your place. He was in a worse place. And in a worse place, he was able to say, I rejoice. 
That's the theme of this epistle. And the reason for it was he could say the philosophy of my life is for me to live Christ. What you and I call environment today, Paul called Christ. You and I'd say, poor Paul, he's in prison. Paul says, I'm in Christ. And I happen to be here in the Mamertine prison, it's true, but I'm here because Christ wills it. And I'm in him. And I can be no place but what he wants me there. Oh, how wonderful to reach that place. I say to you tonight, I covet for you and I covet for myself to be able to come to the place in my life, in your life, to be able to say, for me to live, Christ, that's my environment. That's my life. My friend, when we can come to that place, I tell you, we can go through Los Angeles singing the Hallelujah Chorus. And we can say with this man, none of these things move me. We can say with this man here, I'm persuaded that he's able to keep that which he's committed unto me. We'll be able to say, I know whom I have believed. And we'll go through life rejoicing. Life begins not in the womb, not in that moment when that life comes out of the womb that we call birth. It doesn't begin at 40. Life begins at the moment that you and I come to know Christ and are born again. Life begins with a new birth. And very briefly tonight, I wish I could talk on several things this evening. In fact, I wish I could make it an orthodox sermon and talk on life begins with a new birth, life begins with a new purpose, and life begins with a new power. But I can only talk on one tonight. Life begins with a new birth. Just as physical life begins with a birth, spiritual life begins with a birth. And the reason for that is all important. You will recall that I came to the Lord Jesus Christ one night, a religious man. And you may be sure of one thing, that in the Word of God, these things that are recorded are recorded for a definite purpose. That religious man, John tells us, many other things did Jesus, which are not recorded in this book, but these are written for a definite purpose, that you might know that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you might have life in his name. And this man, Nicodemus, was a religious man. And if religion was all that you needed, then Nicodemus had it. Our Lord did wrong that night in interrupting this man who currently wanted to come in and discuss with him probably the kingdom of God and carry on a religious argument. Not necessarily an argument, but at least a conversation. And our Lord said to him, interrupted him, he said to him, Nicodemus, here you are with a God-given religion, a God-given religion that's gone to seed, and it's far from God today. There's no longer any life in it, but you've gone through the ritual of it. He was sincere of heart. He had all of that. And yet with all of that, our Lord said to him, ye must be born again. Imagine telling a man like that, ye must be born again. It's like the little Salvation Army lassie. 
was on the train going out of New York City, and there came in in the old days it was, a man with a high silk hat sat down, and she wanted a witness to him. And she said to him, Are you a Christian? And he, in a very dignified way, said, Yes. And she said to him, wanted to make sure he didn't say it like she wanted him to say it. And she began to witness to him and say to him that Jesus died for his sins. And he said to her, still in a very dignified, Do you know who you're talking to? And she said, No, I don't. Well, he says, I'm the president of Union Theological Seminary. Well, she says, Sir, God can save you. <laughs> you know, religion stands in the way of a great many people. I'm more and more convinced that more people are being kept from Christ because of religion. And this man Nicodemus came, and he wanted to discuss religion. He didn't come in to discuss politics. He came to discuss religion. And our Lord said to this man, Ye must be born again. Nicodemus said, I don't know what you're talking about. And then our Lord said this to him. It's an axiom. He says, That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That's an axiom of truth. That's like two plus two equal four. That's like a straight line is the shortest distance between two points. That's like the law of gravitation. I have this song book here. If I turn this book loose, I'm almost sure it'll drop down here to the floor. I sure'd be surprised if it went the other direction, I'll tell you that. But every time I've ever tried this and turned this book loose, I always do that to wake up two or three folks. Every time that you do that, that book will fall. You know why? Because there's a law of God. And there's another law. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. It always will be flesh. can't be anything else. Now, you can improve it. You can educate it, and it should be educated. It needs to be given manners, and I think manners and culture is something needed in Southern California today. But after you've done all of that, it's still flesh. And that's the danger today. To think that somehow or another we can put a culture of veneer around the flesh, this old Adamic nature, and somehow or another make it acceptable to God. God says that he cannot accept it, nor will he accept it. In fact, he has judged it. He sentenced it to death. And that's what it means when it says, in Adam all die. You and I have got a nature that we got from Adam that's got to die. Somebody says, but if the Lord comes tonight, we wouldn't die. We're told we're translated. What do you think happens to that old nature? I think it dies. You can't take it to heaven. You can't take Los Angeles to heaven. How tragic it would be tonight to lift Los Angeles to heaven it wouldn't be heaven 
and be Los Angeles. God is not saving the old nature. Therefore, you and I have a nature sentenced to death. We're already alienated from God. And real life begins when you and I come to Jesus Christ. And as he told Nicodemus that night, he says, The Son of Man must be lifted up. You must be born again. You can't do that yourself. You can't any more do that any more than you had anything to do with your first birth. But the Son of Man must be lifted up that whosoever believeth in him might not perish but have eternal life. And so the Son of Man has come to be lifted up as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness and multitudes of those people dying like flies in the wilderness were told that Moses had put a brazen serpent up and if you look at it and many scoffed and never looked but they died but many believed and looked in faith and lived. And the Lord Jesus Christ tonight has been lifted up on a cross. That's our business, to hold him up. Oh, how he needs to be lifted up. Somebody said to me, he said, if I be lifted up, I'll draw all men to me. Why isn't he drawing all men? Because he's not being lifted up in Los Angeles. You've got to lift him up, my beloved. He's not being lifted up enough. He has to be lifted up. He says, if I be lifted up. And then he gave to that man Nicodemus that very familiar verse, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever, whosoever of dying humanity, humanity with a nature that's alienated from God, that which is born of the flesh is flesh, It'll always be flesh. It goes down to death as flesh. That which is born of the Spirit is spirit. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in him might not perish. Don't have to go down into eternal death, separated from God. But here and now you can be regenerated, given a nature, a nature that makes you a son of God. To as many as received him, to them gave he the right, the authority to become the sons of God, even to those that don't do any more nor less than just simply believe in his name. And for those who will come by faith, they are made a son of God, given a nature and a capacity for God and the things of God, my beloved. And I believe more and more today that we're seeing wheat and tares growing together. And as they grow together, more and more can you identify them. Wheat are going to head up and be wheat, and tares are going to head up and be tares. And when Paul went over to Ephesus, he detected they didn't have the Holy Spirit. They were not born again and indwelt by the Spirit of God. And he made inquiry and found out they were not. And I believe that we're living in a day, friends, when each one of us need to examine ourselves, see whether we're in the faith or not. Scripture tells us to. That means everybody.
I like periodically to go off, make an inventory. You know what I do? Because <laughs> the devil got me at the beginning. I went down to a little altar in a Methodist church, and he worried me for years. He used to reach over my shoulder and say, McGee, you sure you're Christian? And I'd say, well, I don't know. Oh, I got the answer for him now. <laughs> he doesn't bother me anymore on that. When he comes now, because I do this periodically, you know what I do? I get out and accept Jesus Christ all over again. When he comes and says to me, you sure you have? Well, I said, maybe I have. Maybe you're right. And if you're right, I accept him right now and then. Get away. I take him right now as my Savior. My friend, why? Fools and dilly-dally, shilly-shally in these days with eternal matters. And play along and keep up a front. Why not know that I've passed from death to life? Why not be sure? For me to live, Christ. And it begins with the new birth. Has life really begun with you? Life begins with a new birth. It begins when you come to Christ. It begins when you trust Him. Really, has it begun with you? And if it hasn't, tonight could be the most wonderful night for you. Now, people sitting here tonight that told me this morning that they had in this church a few months ago the most wonderful experience they ever had. Life began. Life began. can begin for you if by faith you turn to Jesus Christ and trust Him. Life begins with Him. Shall we pray? Our gracious, loving Father God, we rejoice tonight in this wonderful Savior that we have. We've attempted tonight to lift Him up. But, oh God, we haven't, we haven't put Him high enough. If He was high enough, all could see Him and would be drawn to Him. We do pray that this week, that Thou wilt speak to Thy children, that in their lives and in their witnessing they might lift Him up so that others might see Him. Bless these tonight who've lifted their hand. Pray that Thou wilt speak to their hearts. Give them courage and conviction. And if there are others in our midst or those that listened in tonight that need Him, we do pray that Thou will speak to them and that the Holy Spirit will bring a conviction so that they cannot sleep and will be restless until they find their rest in Him. For we pray in His name. Amen. I got a surprise for you. In just a moment, we're going to hear more from Dr. J. Vernon McGee about our new life in Christ, particularly our new nature. 
But first, I want to invite you to join me for more great teaching as the Bible bus rolls through Philippians each day this week. To get our app or listen online or check out the many other ways we make Dr. McGee's teaching available, visit ttb.org. And that's also the place where you can download some great resources to take you deeper into our study, including our Bible companion for Philippians and Dr. McGee's notes and outlines for our study. Now, both of these great resources are free and they're available at ttb.org. Or you can just call us at 1-800-65-BIBLE if we can help you locate them. Again, that's 1-800-65-BIBLE. Now, as you know, Dr. McGee loved hearing from our listeners, and he loved their stories, their poems, their prayer requests, and their questions. One subject that he loved to talk about was the change that occurs in believers when we come to Christ and how the Holy Spirit gives us power to live for Him. So to close us today, here's Dr. McGee answering this question from a sincere listener. Dr. McGee, I've heard you say that when we come to Christ, there is no power in our new nature. Will you explain this in greater detail? Yes, I will. I'm turning to one passage of Scripture that I consider very important in this connection, and I think that it may help us to understand what we mean when we say there's no power in the new nature. You and I have two natures, and Paul talks about that two natures in the seventh chapter of the epistle to the Romans. He says, and I'm just going to put in now at verse 10, and the commandment which was ordained to life, I found to be to death. In other words, the commandments brought death to him. Why? Because they didn't bring life because he couldn't keep them. He couldn't measure up to them. And now Paul writes about that. I'm reading now the 7th of Romans, verse 11. For sin, taking occasion by the commandment, deceived me, and by it slew me. In other words, the very commandment that I was clinging to, it condemned me didn't save me, it condemns me. And I can't go before God and say, look, I'm a nice little Sunday school boy. Look here at all these pins I got. I never missed Sunday school for 10 years. That's no good. (laughs) But about the commandments of God, have you been able to keep all the commandments of God? And I've never met a man yet that would look me straight in the eye and tell me that he kept all the commandments of God. I had one man that came to me, and he didn't like the idea of me saying that he was a sinner. He said he kept the commandments. He said, I live by the Sermon on the Mount. He says, that's my religion. Well, I said, it's a good religion if you keep it. And he says, well, I think I do. I said, well, let's experiment a little in the Old Testament, that if you so much as killed a man, you're guilty of murder. But the Lord Jesus now lifted it to the nth degree, and he says if you're angry with your brother, you've got hatred in your heart against your brother, you're guilty of murder. I said, how about that? And he hesitated a little, but he came through on it, and he said he thought he could pass that one. I said, well, there's another one. Lord Jesus said that Thou shalt not commit adultery. That's one of the Ten Commandments. And he called attention, the man, to that one. But he added, he says, if you so much as 
look upon a woman to lust after her while you're guilty of adultery. Now, I said to this man, would you want to look me straight in the eye and tell me that you've never looked upon a woman to lust after her? And he says, oh, sure. He turned and walked away. Of course, the commandments condemn you, you see. And how then are you going to be accepted? Well, somebody paid the penalty for you as a lawbreaker and me as a lawbreaker and as a sinner. And therefore, I'm to trust him today as my Savior. And when I do that, that takes me out of this old family of Adam and puts me in a new family, the last Adam. There's not going to be a third one. The last Adam is the Lord Jesus. And you're either in him or you're not in him. You either trust him or you don't trust him, you see. Now I'm going to keep reading here because this is very important. Paul goes on to say, wherefore the law is holy. Now there's nothing wrong with the law and the commandment holy and just and good. Was then that which is good made death unto me? God forbid, but sin that it might appear sin worketh death in me for that which is good, that sin by the commandment might become exceeding sinful. You see, before God gave commandments, Cain killed his brother Abel. God didn't do a thing with Cain about that. There was no law about that at the time. But there came a day when God gave a law about that. Now, the law doesn't save us. It shows us we're sinners. It's a mirror that we put up to ourselves and shows us where we come short of God. Now, will you notice, verse 15 says, For that which I do, I allow not. Now, Paul's talking about the two natures. When you and I receive Christ as Savior, we're given a new nature. You think, well, if we're given a new nature, my Now we can walk up and down the earth like giants, but you can't. I fell on my face worse than I'd ever fallen on my face after I was saved because I thought I could do it. I found out I can't do it. I need some help, you know, even the new nature. It has no power. For that which I do, I allow not. Paul says, I had these bad habits and this old nature controlled my body and I did things that the new nature could do nothing about it. I just did them. And that's the reason you see a Christian sometimes break over. They tried in the new nature to live for God, but you can't do it by yourself. For what I would, that do I not. And what I hate, that do I. Do you know anything about that, Christian friend? that you're doing something that you actually hate. And if that's true of you, you're a Christian that's trying to live in your own strength and you can't do it. And if then I do that which I would not, I consent unto the law that it's good. Now then it's no more I that do it, but sin that dwelleth in me. Now listen to this. Paul says, for I know that in me, that is, in my flesh, this old carnal nature I got, dwelleth no good thing. And when he said no good thing, that's exactly what he meant. There's no good thing. For to 
will is present with me, but how to perform that which is good I find not. And he went on at that struggle and finally cried out, O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? Paul made a failure, the Christian life at first, and he cried out for help. He needed help. And what did God do? Well, let's go into the eighth chapter now. Verse 2 says, For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus hath made me free from the law of sin and death, for what the law could not do. Now, it's not that there was something wrong with the law. Law was good. There's something wrong with us. The problem is with us, not with the law. We're not able to do it. We got that old nature. And he says, for what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh. It's weak through the flesh. God sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin condemns sin in the flesh. Now that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. Now, may I say to you that when you and I saved, we're indwelt by the Spirit of God, and it's only as you and I today walk in the power of the Holy Spirit will we be able to live for God. You and I can't live the Christian life. Haven't you discovered that, friend? These people today that tell me they live in the Christian life, doing it in their own strength. To me, they're a miserable lot of people, and their lives are not very commensurate with that which I think a Christian ought to be and ought to exhibit to the world outside. There's no good thing in us. He's given us the Holy Spirit, and now it's only by the power of the Holy Spirit that you and I can do it. So that what you and I cannot do as believers, we think we can, We can't do it. Only the Holy Spirit. And that's such a comforting thing to know. I've reached the place now that in my life where old age has set in and I'm not as active with my radio program and the devil got into it. And I had a lot of trouble getting the devil out, you know. I didn't have the physical strength. But the Lord in a marvelous way moved in and moved this individual out. And I want to say to you that what the flesh can't do, the Holy Spirit can do. And so I couldn't do it myself. And I just had to turn this whole thing over to the Lord. And I did. And he handled it. I didn't handle it. He took care of it. And that is the most wonderful thing about it, friends. And that is the answer to your question here is the fact that the Holy Spirit Spirit is the one to give you strength that there's no power in the new nature. I hope you learn that lesson. That means a close walk with God. That means to walk in the Spirit, walk in the power of the Spirit. Again and again, we're told to walk in the Spirit, walk in the Spirit. Why? Because that's the only way we're going to live the Christian life down here. We can't do it ourselves. And I'm sure glad the Lord made it like that because I found out I couldn't do it. 
but I've also found out he can do it. And this is very important. You've asked a tremendous question. In fact, you've asked a good question, very pertinent for this hour in which we live. Jesus made it Today's study with Dr. J. Vernon McGee is brought to you by Through the Bible, and it's made possible by the generous prayer and financial investments from listeners like you on the Bible bus all around the world.